Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I forgot to announce the kids are welcome to go to Children's Chapel. You can follow Heidi here at the corner. Um, Kiddos, if you're in the back, Chloe's there. Find your way around. Heidi will take you to the Children's Chapel. You're welcome to go. I'm going to get used to doing that eventually. Our biblical stories this morning, by accident or by design, touch on a common theme, economics. The story of Moses and God's manna from heaven may not deal directly with currency, but God's provision is the clear message of the story. Jesus' parable about the workers and the employer makes an economic connection pretty obviously. And Jesus could be pretty direct about economics. Give us this day our daily bread. There's an economic stake in this life of faith. This morning, we're at the beginning of a sermon series on God's economics. We'll begin today, pause next week to bless the animals with St. Francis, and then pick up where we left off on October 8th. In this first sermon, I want to present two perspectives that I believe at least partly characterize God's economics. Abundance and equity. Abundance and equity. Begin with abundance. Walter Brueggemann is a deeply respected biblical theologian. He's got ties to St. Louis. He received his PhD from St. Louis University, and he got his divinity degree from Eden Seminary, where he later served as the academic dean. And some of Brueggemann's most influential work is in the biblical description of God's abundance over and against human perceptions of scarcity. Brueggemann argues that for the first 46 chapters of the Bible, we hear of God's extravagant abundance. God is lavish in creation. God creates more than God's creatures need to survive. Be fruitful and multiply, God says. There's room. There's plenty. This abundance continues through the sojourn of Abraham and Sarah, making them and their descendants a blessing to all people. This blessing, this abundance, it takes a sharp left turn in the 47th chapter of Genesis. Listen to Brueggemann describe chapter 47. Pharaoh dreams that there will be a famine in the land. So Pharaoh gets organized to administer, control, and monopolize the food supply. Pharaoh introduces the principle of scarcity into the world economy. For the first time in the Bible, someone says, there's not enough. Let's get everything. Because Pharaoh is afraid that there aren't enough good things to go around, he must try to have them all. Because he is fearful, he is ruthless. Pharaoh hires Joseph to manage the monopoly. When the crops fail and the peasants run out of food, they come to Joseph. And on behalf of Pharaoh, Joseph says, what's your collateral? They give up their land for food. And then the next year, they give up their cattle. By the third year of the famine, they have no collateral but themselves. And that's how the children of Israel become slaves, through an economic transaction. It's Walter Brueggemann. As we know, the people of Israel eventually escape Pharaoh. Last week, we followed them through the sea and out into the wilderness. 
They've left Egypt behind, but the culture of scarcity is still hard to shake. Out there in the wilderness, they grumble and complain. They miss the storehouses of food, even if Pharaoh controlled them. Moses tells them God will provide, and God sends bread from heaven, manna. Manna. The translation of that word is in the text itself. It's kind of funny. It just means, what is this? What is this stuff on the ground? God's people have been so shaped by Pharaoh's scarcity that they don't recognize what it is to receive bread that they didn't pay for, didn't work for. To receive a gift from God, to know God's abundance. They don't know how to trust that God will provide. So despite Moses' warning, they try and store the manna. Doesn't go well for them. Here in St. Louis, when foster care parents are trained, they learn to watch kids closely at the dinner table. Many foster children, even here in this city, come from hungry homes. Often, for weeks after they arrive, care providers have to patiently clean out the kids' pockets after mealtimes. These children have learned to hoard food. When there are calories available, when the cupboard is full, they know they they should save some for later, when the check runs out at the end of the month, when they would be hungry. It takes weeks, sometimes months, for kids to trust that they will be consistently fed no matter the time of the month. When you have learned scarcity, it can be hard to unlearn. It takes practice to trust abundance. Again and again, the Bible tells us there is enough, more than enough. God has provided enough food, clean water, and other necessities for all of humanity, for all of creation. No one should go hungry. But people do go hungry every day. Those of us who live in the developed world, we have a certain stake in this. It's impossible to ignore. But for those of us who live in this developed world, and let's be real, some of us could stand to lose a few pounds, we have a different relationship. And we have a hard time hearing these words. I'm not here to scold you. I don't want to be like the nagging mother who says, eat your food, there are children starving in you fill in the blank. It really isn't that simple. Because really, even when you have enough to eat, Pharaoh's scarcity mentality can have an effect. We receive marketing messages almost 24-7 telling us we don't have enough, we are not enough, we can't do enough unless we purchase these new shoes or that computer. Unless we purchase these things, we won't be enough. How do we practice abundance? How do we move away from scarcity? The sociologist Brene Brown, an Episcopalian, does research on questions related to shame and anxiety. She specifically studied a group of folks who emerged in her research. This group could be categorized as folks who defy the norm. They're not anxious about money. They're not anxious about whether they have enough. Interestingly, these these folks, they don't come from just one economic place. They come from across the economic strata. What unifies them 
is their lack of anxiety. Brene Brown calls this group of people wholehearted. And if you talk to her, she admits she stole that from the way we confess our sins. Give us whole hearts. She calls them wholehearted. So she did research on this group of people and what she found was that what made this group different, the wholehearted folks, what they had in common was a practice of gratitude. Now notice she didn't say an attitude of gratitude, but a practice. When anxiety came knocking, which it inevitably does, they had a practice that helped them pause, to get perspective, to give thanks. All of us, all of us have so much for which to be thankful. When scarcity comes knocking, what is your practice? How do you pause? Pause all those messages and commercials. How do you pause and give thanks? God says, you are enough. You are more than enough. I created you as a blessing. Go and bless somebody. If you are anxious about money, join the club. We live in a society that breeds that anxiety, even among the wealthy. But God created us for a different relationship in economics. God created us for abundance. It brings me to equity and Jesus' parable. Those early morning laborers who grumble in today's story they're not moving from a place of abundance. It's easy to judge them. On the other hand, though, I feel for them. This really does, if you put yourself in their shoes, it feels like unequal treatment. Yet, I would argue, this story teaches us about equity. It's not a story about equality, but equity. I have to confess, I have not always had the same reading of this parable. My reading of this parable has shifted a great deal over the last few years. As growing up, hearing Jesus' story about the latecomers who receive a full day's wage, I always thought this story was about Jewish-Gentile relations. In the early church, there was this debate about whether you had to be a practicing Jew in order to become a Christian. That's why Paul's letters make us cringe when he talks so much about circumcision. I've always read this story as a metaphor for Jewish-Gentile relations. But in my first year of ordained ministry, that reading had to take a back seat to the economics in the story. In my first parish, I served with a Latino congregation. And I remember the, the September when this story came up really well. And many members of that congregation were undocumented immigrants. For the sake of this specific story, I'm going to call one of my members Juan. Juan and I spent a great deal of time together talking with a lawyer through that late summer and early fall. Juan had worked a construction job with a local contractor, but when payday came, the contractor told him to scram. When Juan said, we agreed on a wage, the contractor threatened to call immigration and customs enforcement. Rent was due. Kids were hungry. Juan had worked, but this employer had exploited his labor. Juan was never paid, and he had a hard time finding work again. Meeting with the attorney was a dead end as well. The brokenness of our immigration system, it means that millions, 
Millions of laborers have no protection from their employers under the law. Having spent time talking through one's story with an attorney that month, when I sat down to write my sermon, this parable really presented itself differently. For the first time, I saw the story as a teaching about God's economy of equity. In God's economy, there is enough work for everyone. Why are you idle? The landowner says, well, no one has hired us. In God's economy, everyone receives a wage that allows them to provide for their family. Our reaction to this vision of equity can be strong and strongly negative. Just like those early laborers, why are they getting more? See, there's a difference between equity and equality. Equality means treating everyone the same. We need more equality in this country, but we also need equity, and equity is economically important. Equity means making sure everyone has the same chances. This parable makes us question the wisdom that everyone is able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. There's a certain danger when those of us with wealth begin thinking, I worked hard for what I have, or I got mine. We may be adopting blinders to an inequitable system of advantages. We are seeing in our city a struggle over the meaning of equity. Do children of different races, different classes grow up with equitable opportunities? Do we all get the same chances when we encounter law enforcement? Study after study show Black men are more likely to be found guilty of a crime, more likely to serve jail time, more likely to be denied parole. Black children are more likely to attend an underperforming school, to know domestic violence and food insecurity in their family. Those are just statistics. But systems like these self-perpetuate. They have inertia. Unless an intervention is made, the ground will remain uneven. This week, we have seen a series of protests that are at least in part economic. Activists have shouted, if we don't get it, shut it down. And, you kill our kids, we kill your economy. Yes, the Shockley verdict was the precipitating factor that led to the anger erupting in the streets. But if you listen to the words, there's more at stake. The anger is deeper. The anger is about a lack of equity. We may have laws that protect equal opportunity, but we are not all standing on the same structures that help us to clear the bars on the way to success. This week, Mark and I ended up the poster children for the protest somewhat inadvertently. We were in the paper on, was it Wednesday morning? See, on Tuesday afternoon, we, along with some lay leaders and other Episcopalian colleagues, attended an interfaith prayer vigil for justice and peace, organized by, if you can believe it, the Office of the Roman Catholic Archbishop. <laughs> like good Episcopalians, Mark and I were standing at the back of the crowd. <laughs> I'm looking at you, back pew. 
then some of our black clergy colleagues decided we needed to pray with more than our words. We needed to pray with our feet. At the end of the service, they pushed through the crowd, grabbed the clergy at the back, and marched us to City Hall. The last shall be first got a new meeting. <laughs> I wasn't comfortable with all of the protests that I attended this week. The news keeps talking about protest organizers. I think organizer is a bit of a strong word for many of these actions. They're not very organized. There is a difference between a crowd and a movement. A movement is going somewhere. A movement means that you have concrete proposals, that you are acting to bring them about. But if the protest's lack of organization made me a little uncomfortable, I have to be honest, the police response scared me. Last weekend and this weekend, we have seen officers injure and abuse those who are being taken into custody, including clergy members, including an Air Force officer, including journalists. Do not hear me say that I am anti-police. I have several friends who are officers. I respect many of the police women and men that I know. I pray for them often. I'm wearing an orange stole today. We're singing in this concert to end gun violence because there are police on our streets every day and they are terrified for their lives. The gun violence epidemic in our city and in this country mean that police walk around scared. If we want to change police behavior, one place to start is to change our relationship with guns. Still, the documented behavior in this city of officers of the law toward peaceful protesters has been atrocious and illegal in many instances. As citizens of St. Louis City and County, we deserve better. The action that Mark and I accidentally got famous for on Tuesday afternoon was the most organized that I've seen. The police presence was calm. The officers protected our right to assemble and to free speech. They did their job. As I shared in our weekly email, I was particularly moved by the words of one of my colleagues, the Reverend Dr. Cassandra Gould, an AME pastor from Jefferson City. This was a prayer for justice and peace. And she spoke about the kind of peace that we see. She talked about the, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Shalom means peace, but it's a robust peace. Shalom also means wholeness. It brought tears to my eyes to hear her talk about wholeness. She said, Missouri as a state came into being by compromising. Missouri became a state by compromising the wholeness, the identity of black people, by holding them as slaves. We don't have streets named after the enslaved Africans that Laclede and Choteau brought with them as they founded St. Louis. We began in this city 200 years ago with inequity. And if you look at the statistics, the inequity persists. God's economy is one of equity. God provides enough, more than enough, for us all. In God's economy, there are plenty of jobs. There is plenty of wealth. So even those who don't find a full day's work can be paid enough to bring home the daily bread. 
In God's economy, there are equitable schools that help us all have a chance at a start, and equitable health care so that we're not wrecked by debt just to make it to survive. This parable continues to challenge us today. How do we really provide equity? How do we make our economy, our education system, and our health system work so that all St. Louisans have access to an abundant life? When we speak about economics, there's a great deal at stake. Life and livelihood. God's economy does not look like our economy. We'll keep talking about that as this series goes on. For today, where we struggle with scarcity, with anxiety that there will never be enough, that we will never be enough, God provides abundantly. And God invites us to work for more equity so that regardless of the color of your skin or the profession of your parents, all might know God's abundant blessings in this life. Amen.